1: You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and our Warren on. 102.3 FM Riverside and 105.0 AM Palm
3: Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery. I'm Al Warren. Mr. Dave Martino is here. I am. You are. Yeah. I'm present. I saw you on TikTok. You, you did. I haven't put yeah. anything up on TikTok in a bit. Well, I thought I saw yeah. you on TikTok. Someone on TikTok. They they. Got fifty thousand dollars. Oh, that was me. Yeah, in yeah. their bank, and then they <laughs> and they thought they'd keep it and spend it, and then they went on TikTok and told everyone. Well, that's so now, that's now the the smart bank, thing to do. Yeah, now the bank is calling. <laughs> 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 oh, it's kind of that's, fun today living yeah. in today's world. You know? That's crazy. It is, but I th- I thought it was you for sure. I thought, <laughs> you, thought you were in your dress and makeup and yeah, that's you know. Your other personality. My <laughs> other
1: personality. <laughs> One of many.
3: One of many. Well, today we are in the true crime world, and uh, joining us, we've got a returning guest who's uh, written a few books over the time we've talked to. So, Maureen Boyle, thanks for being here.
0: And thanks for having me. It's always a fun time being on your show.
3: Well, we try to make it that way, because we get... Oh, I think it's just the, the type of humor you have to have sometimes dealing with kind of dark cases.
0: Yeah, you have you have to have a sense of humor. Uh like cops have very dark dark sense of humor. Reporters have a dark sense of humor when you're talking about these type of cases. You, you know, if you don't laugh you'll cry.
3: Yeah. It's just a way of getting uh it, it releases the stress a little bit, you know, the tension. I
0: I, think. I agree with you.
3: Your your book now, this one that just came out June 1st is called Child Last Sea The Search for Patty Desmond. So, of course, I always like to see uh, how someone finds a case. Like, this is a case from, what, 1965. So, how did you come across this?
0: Um, I came across uh, this case uh, while doing the research for my second book, uh, The Ghost, the Hunt for uh, the the Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer. I was in Pennsylvania in the greater Saxonburg area, and I was wrapping up some of the research and getting release forms and a variety of other things, and I was uh, talking with a retired state trooper who with the Greg Adams case had worked the case a little bit as a road trooper. He was there the day that the the chief was killed and we're talking a little bit and he said, you know, I I investigated this other case. It's a really good case. If you want, you know, you should do this case. And I'm thinking, okay, just what I want to do after I just spent hours and weeks and years on this case. But I'm like, yeah, well, what's it about? And he goes into it a little bit. And I said, yeah, but I need a lot of, you know, research on it, either you know, uh, police reports, court uh, records, things like that. And he brought out some of his personal notes. And later on, when I got home, I started reading it. And it was a very, it was a fascinating case. Uh, and I put it aside because I was wrapping up the ghost and then I had book events after that. And I decided, you know, you know, let me look at this once more. And that's how I began uh, writing this book.
3: What is it about a case that you that you think that draws you or attracts you enough that you want to write about it?
0: It's got to be interesting. It's got to be something that I'm going to learn from also. Because if I'm going to learn from uh, researching a case, the reader will also learn something about it. And that's why I'll include some, you know, odd facts about that time or about the forensics or... Um, how police or other investigators do certain things, because I think everyone, when you're reading, you need to be, keep, you need to keep learning. It can't be just, yes, someone was murdered and someone was caught, and here is the four corners of uh, the, the story. I want to give uh, people a little bit more depth. Um, I want them to know more about the individual, about the process that. Uh, investigators go through when they are looking to, uh, solve a case, what was different in one case versus another, and also teach people and highlight to people how things have changed over the years. I think too many people today think that, uh, murder cases can be solved in, you know, 60 minutes, maybe uh, 90 minutes, depending on if it's a a series or not, and, and that's not how it happens. Uh, it, 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 it's not? No, it's <laughs> not. You know, people, people think that, you know, bingo, little cops arrive, they get some DNA, and bingo, they put it into some system and they find out who the killer is. And it doesn't matter if it's a case from the 1950s or 40s or 60s or 70s or, or yesterday, and that they're going to get the, the results within an hour, and they're going to be slapping the handcuffs on the killer, and they're going to go right to trial, and the person's going to be convicted. And that just isn't how things happen, because most most cases, either someone is caught right away because there is literally a smoking gun, or it takes uh, weeks, months, years, or decades. And then there's some cases that are not, never solved, even if uh, authorities believe they Know who the killer is. There just isn't enough evidence to uh, to convict the person. So if there's not enough evidence to convict, a prosecutor is not going to bring them to trial.
3: Well, you totally disillusioned me. <laughs> so, yeah. So,
0: so when I look at a at a case, it's got to be something that I'm going to find interesting because I invest so much time in it. Uh, there's got to be a reason for me to do it. I don't want to be bored. Interviewing people, doing any of the research. There's got to be some, some little quirky thing that, that I, I will also get out of it. And I, I need a lot of uh, records. It can't just be talking to two people. Uh, that is not what a, a, you can't base a book on that um, because people's memories are very, I won't say flawed, but people, mis- yeah, people misremember things uh, and they don't mean to especially as time goes on. So I need some, you know, hard hard records um, that are factual from that time. So if someone said something happened on a Tuesday and the official records say it happened on a Wednesday, I'm going to put in the book that it happened on a Wednesday and that they are misremembering. And I'll, I'll let them know, you know, the, the police reports say happened on a Wednesday and they're like, oh, I guess it must be.
3: No, it was a conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: that's a whole different. That's a whole different other story about con- conspiracy. Because, yeah, everyone in prison, as you know, is well, yeah. uh, innocent. They're
3: innocent, uh, and they find yeah, Jesus. Uh,
0: yes, yeah. <laughs> and, and and I think people don't realize how difficult it is to convict an individual. Jurors don't automatically convict.
3: Well, I think jurors also, they're very personal, right? Um, people, people get feelings about different um, witnesses testifying and stuff, so they, it's how they feel. If they like the person that's up, um, on trial, a lot of times they don't want to convict them, right?
0: Oh, that's very, very true. From uh, years of covering court, uh, for decades, more, de- more, more decades than I will admit to, I covered uh, police and courts and I've sat through many uh, murder cases, and jurors like to identify with the witnesses. And if the witness is someone that they don't like, um, very often, and the jurors would never admit it, and no one in the courtroom will admit it, but if they don't like the witness, sometimes they tend not to believe them. Uh Or if they relate to them in a, in a negative way, they know someone who is just like that person, they uh, they may discount whatever they're saying but if there's someone who's on the stand that they can relate to because it's it's like them they more likely will will believe them when i think of one murder case that i uh, covered it was a shaken baby case uh, the and the it was a babysitter who was accused of injuring a child in her care and the woman said no The child when the child was brought in the child was sick and was sleeping and later on, the, the child was unresponsive, and she called 911. The defendant was very, very believable and very relatable to the jury. The mother of the child was not. She had a certain effect that made the those that were watching the case, no matter how much they dressed her up, they're looking at the mother and the mother's family as, you know, one of them could have done it, and then they just pawned it off on the on the babysitter brought the brought the sick the kid to the babysitter, and the babysitter eventually was acquitted, but it was because they the jury did not believe some of the prime witnesses because of how they appeared and how they spoke, how they presented themselves. It was another case where he, a guy was a teenager was accused of uh, setting his aunt and uncle's house on fire, and killing them at the behest of his Aunt, who was a year older than him, actually it was like his great aunt and uncle. Uh, no, his cousin. I'm getting family relationships mixed up. Uh, claiming that you know his cousin is the one who was the brains of the operation, convinced him to uh, set the house on fire. Um, and the uh, defense attorney had the the kid when he was sitting there at the defense uh, table, all dressed up, wearing glasses. Um uh, the defendant did not wear glasses. These glasses were just regular glass, not prescription lens. And of course, once he was acquitted, off go the glasses and the uh, the kid was out the door. Uh, the brains of the operation was convicted and I believe uh, went on appeal and she may be out by now. But it, it, it's a matter of uh, how people relate to the witnesses in these cases.
3: So this story is the search for Patty Desmond. Now, in 65, she she was, what, 15 years old? Now, she was um, a person that ran away from her home before, right? And she would always, I guess she didn't get along with her mother mainly. I'm not sure. So when she disappeared this this one night, it was really not much different than what had happened before.
0: Well, what happened is, you know, she was listed when she disappeared. She It was noted in police reports that she had run away before. Uh, Some members of her family kind of dispute that. Uh, Her mother had told police that she had left home before, but she would always be at a a relative's house or someplace like that. And it was only once or twice before. And it was not for an extended period of time. In this case, uh, Patty was involved with an older uh, man who was married with a child. Uh, She was 15. He was 19. You know, when you look at the age difference, in terms of years, they'll say, "Oh, it's not that many years." But when someone's fifteen and someone's nineteen, at that period of their lives, that is a large, very wide, um, wide difference. Her mother, her mother, did not like him. Uh, he had a criminal record, and she had uh, warned her uh, daughter to stay away from him, to stay very far away from him. And of course, Patty was smitten with him, and she this one night after an argument. The Patty slipped out of the house, uh, and this guy, uh, Conrad Miller, came by the house in his car went with some friends. She slipped out and hopped in the car, and they they took off. He dropped off some of his friends, saying, "You know, we'll catch up with you later." They went off to a uh, mine area that was known for, you know, sort of like a lovers' lane. And he claims that she said that she was pregnant by someone else, uh, and he. Uh, took her to a uh, fire hall, volunteer fire hall in another community where she said she was going to go to a friend's house. Uh, she never arrived at the friend's house the next day, and she obviously never went home, and her mother reported her missing the next day. Uh, police at the time, uh, Butler Township Police in Pennsylvania, uh, then after Patty was reported missing, interviewed uh, Miller, interviewed the a woman that Patty's Patty was go, home. Uh, Patty was going to interviewed some family members, interviewed some of Miller's friends, and they came up short. Uh, Miller kept to his story, and the case. I want not say the case was dropped, but there really wasn't anything more that they could do at that time. Now this is also 1965. Uh, that's a time when uh, teenage teenagers who went missing. Those cases were treated very, very differently than they are today. Teenagers were presumed very often presumed to be runaways. Uh, this is the, you know, the start of the what some would call it the quote unquote hippie era, the uh, flower child era, where there was a number of runaways in the U.S. going off to uh, California or New York or some other place. Uh, so after a bit that her uh, the missing persons report was put on hold uh, for a few, for a number of years until her sister got into contact with someone who was involved in the criminal justice system, uh, saying, "You know, are they ever going to, you know, solve my sister's case? She's been missing all this time. What's up?" And uh, that person went to the state police, and state police, who were not involved in the initial investigation, reopened the case and. Reinterviewed some of the people initially uh, talked with, and a host of other people. Uh, they really documented the case very, very well, and, but still came to the same conclusion. Last person to have seen Patty, that they believed, was this guy named Conrad Miller. No one had seen her since, and they really believed uh, that, you know, they hoped that she was still alive, but they, they believed that she was dead. Uh, Some people thought she was in an abandoned mine. Some people thought she was um, buried underneath the state highway that was under construction at the time. Uh, No one knew where she was. Uh, And then the case went cold again because they had no body. uh, While Miller had alluded to some friends that uh, he might have uh, done her harm not quite saying that he killed her but you know alluded to it initially that you know no one's ever gonna find her type of uh, conversations um, and then by uh, later on in the in the mid mid uh, 80s someone in the community came forward notified the police about where there was a possibility of where Patty was from and that is part of the really the gist of the case of what happens when Someone bucks the system in, in a way, uh, the, the norms in in part of a community, and comes forward and does the right thing, uh, even though it's very very difficult. Um, someone who brings justice to a family that they never met, brings justice for a teenage girl that they never knew, and at great um, risk to themselves. And that's part of uh, the story here. It goes beyond a cold case, it goes to the heart of people doing the right thing, doing the moral thing, and how you have to dig very deep to focus on that.
3: Well, a case like this, I guess if if you don't keep on it, you know, being a, a family member or somebody involved in it, if you don't keep pushing it, it gets, it gets kind of buried doesn't it because there's so many cases going on and as the years go by it kind of gets out of the out of touch out of focus for the police or law enforcement so you kind of have to keep it uh, keep it alive so to speak so that's got to be really hard to do
0: yeah and i i I agree with you on that um family members in all of these these cases cold cases in particular they have got to keep on investigators and keep it at the on the front burner if you will um on the prosecutor's desk and the uh, state police or the local police uh, detectives on their, uh, on their desk saying, you know, what about, what about, what about? Um, Because otherwise the case will be forgotten. You know, in in the case of Patty, it did get forgotten in, in many, many circles because the family didn't know what to do uh, beyond, you know, notifying uh, authorities doing some searches on their own for her, keeping their ears open. She came from, she was one of six children. Uh, her father died when she was quite young, so her mother raised all six kids on her, pretty much on her own at a time when good jobs for women you know, in the 60s and late 50s, good jobs for women, particularly in Western Pennsylvania, uh, in the area where they were living, were really hard to come by, and women were paid much less than, than men, and there were certain types of jobs women were barred from getting. And those were generally the more expensive, the more high level uh, paying jobs. So that, her mother worked very, very hard uh, to basically keep a roof over their head, keep food on the table. Patty was a very shy girl. She was not a stunning uh, child. She had been bullied at school. Some of her classmates have said they, they kind of felt sorry for her. And she was a type of girl that I noted is, would, would fall prey to someone who would um, pay attention to her. Uh, Conrad Miller at that time, when you look at photos of him, and there's a photo of him in the book, uh, a mugshot, of course, uh, where he looks like James Dean. He looks very different today, but you know, he's thin, the hair in the back, you know, slicked back. Um, He was a a quote-unquote bad boy, and unfortunately, teenage girls, for a brief period of their time, sometimes they are attracted to bad boys, and he paid attention to Patty and i think she was very flattered she wasn't worldly enough to uh, realize that this was going to lead to some, something very very bad
3: so what do you think the the biggest problem in this case was was it just was it just the standard way the police treated a missing kid case back in the 60s or was it the area they were in or was it the family um and what they were thought of by the police maybe? Or what do you think the biggest problem was?
0: Well, I think all all of the above. Good points that you make. I think a lot of it was that uh, time period uh, and the lack of the type of forensic um, tools that we have today. There there wasn't anything that was found on him that could be traced to her. I don't think that investigators at the time knew where to look, where uh, some of the the key evidence was, and they uh, they pressed him quite a bit, but I think they could have perhaps pressed him a little bit more uh, in the case. The biggest hurdle that they had was that they had no body, so that they could not charge him without a body. I mean, you could always charge, it's been cases where people have been uh, charged with murder when their, their body hasn't been found, but there's other Evidence that would substantiate the claim that uh, we're talking about a murder. In this case, there really was not enough evidence to charge initially. So that was, I think, the big.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
2: In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
0: Biggest, the um, biggest problem that they had in the case, no body. And, and if you and if you charge too quickly, and the person is and you don't have everything lined up, and the person is acquitted, and then later on down the road, you find the body, you, you find more evidence that this person, good solid evidence that this person. Committed the murder, you can't recharge them because they've been acquitted. So that that is a a problem in that type of a case. They needed something that was much more uh, ironclad.
3: Besides the body, was there any evidence that was preserved into the 1980s when they um,
1: eventually found her?
0: Um, they didn't have any evidence from the 1960s. Nothing at all. Uh, you know, they knew that she was in his car. So if they you know, fingerprints in his car would prove nothing because he said he was here. There was no um, blood that they could see in his car. You know, they they really had nothing at that time initially in 1965 to charge
3: him. So, what do we know about this guy, this this Conrad Eugene Miller? Like, what had he been in trouble with before with the law? Had he had, ever had problems with with the law, and what was it?
0: Well, he had a, a lot of. Uh, problems with the law. Is initially, when he was, uh, prior to the murder, there was a lot of petty crimes, you know, B&E's, thefts, that type of thing. Uh, he was what one member of law enforcement described to me as what they called a quote-unquote toad. Um, and I think that translates into other parts of the country. Uh, cops might call him a frequent flyer. They, would, they know who he was because they ran across him while investigating criminal activities. After Patty went missing, he went on and spent quite a bit of time in prison in South Carolina uh, for a murder charge, not, I'm sorry, not a murder charge, for rape charge. He was uh, charged with a sexual assault on a 13-year-old girl. When he was uh, paroled from there and moved back to Pennsylvania, he was then charged with a arrested and charged in another rape uh, where he spent a considerable amount of time. And once he got out, uh, that's when someone came forward and that helped them uh, solve the case. So he has a really long criminal record. He spent most of his adult life in either a jail or a prison.
3: It's just kind of, it's frustrating to see a case like this, because you don't, who knows what was going on and why it all fell apart. But but they did eventually find her body.
0: Yeah, they, they eventually found her, and, and that is why they were able to prosecute him, based on based on that. Because they, they had enough evidence that, that led them to, to the body and some other collaborating evidence, so they, they had enough to, to charge him which was, was, was absolutely fascinating. And, you know, what I found interesting about this case is uh, I learned a lot about human remains. You know, it's not quite the type of thing that you discuss in, in cocktail parties. You now you have friends, I don't know about you guys, but. Well,
3: in my cocktail parties. <laughs> <we do. laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. But, you know, there's other places where people look at you like, oh, that's, you know, that's kind of creepy. And you, you forget. That only certain people will understand what you're talking about and find it fascinating. Other people, you know, give you the the side eye and you know sidestep away from you. Like, oh, that's a very weird person. Which is okay. Uh, I really didn't want to talk. That's,
3: that's dinner conversation <laughs> to me.
0: <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, you well, then you can appreciate that you. You look at them you're like, I didn't want to talk to you anyhow, because you must be pretty boring. (laughs) But you know, I, I you learn about you know, in each of my books I've learned so many interesting things about science, of which I was science was not my subject in school. Science, math, foreign languages, all of that that didn't go through my head at all. Reading, writing history, that was what I enjoyed studying. But now I'm finding I'm reading a lot of science textbooks for my for my books complete with highlighting uh, things and uh, how to identify remains and how to what bone it goes to what and how you can you know identify bone fat fragments yeah that that's that's my uh my stories at any type of parties these days so there's only a my my friend's uh circle is very very small <laughs> As a result, yeah, yeah. If you look at the grave and go, well, you know, that if that kind of looks like the mud <laughs> scene I was at, yeah, or, you know, that's, oh, that's kind of uh, strawberry tart. It's kind of sticky, just like that blood that was sticking to my shoes as I walked through a crime scene. And yeah, the people are like, okay, I'm going to. I think I'm going to go sit at the other end of the table.
3: Yeah, past the gravy, and you're talking about, you know, splatter. And
0: yes, food. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly. There. And as I said, those are the people you don't want to talk with yeah.
3: anyhow. <laughs> Slowly back away from the woman. <laughs> well, I'm wondering, uh, where was she found?
0: Uh, she was found in a, uh, in a house. Uh, well, what used to be a house. In an area that they would not looking at they never would have found her if someone hadn't come forward never never in a million years would they have found
3: her. so when you when you say someone comes forward of course we're not going to talk about the answers and all that but
0: the person was was able to lead police to where patty's remains were and once they were able to find her they you know that, that basically verified yes everything that was said was true and that's how they were able to piece together the whole case.
3: But that leads me to believe that um, someone knew what had happened at the time.
0: Yes, someone did.
3: And th- th- there might have been a few people even. like, And I just that always kind of makes me wonder why they didn't come forward. You know?
0: There's a lot of reasons why people don't come forward. Um, sometimes it's it maybe it may a relative. It may be a close friend. It might be someone who is involved somehow with the murder. There's a a whole variety of reasons or they're afraid that the whole no snitching culture that we talk about today as if it's brand new. That has been going on for decades. And it was even in the 1960s. You don't tell on people. Um, And that's what was uh, that was also another element of of the case, people weren't going to turn them in until the very end.
3: When you're doing a story like this and, and you're deciding to write it and investigate it and you're going through it at the end of it, do you, do you kind of hope people take away something from the book other than the actual case being solved in the story itself? Is there something you're trying to get across?
0: Yes, and, and thanks for asking that. That is one of the, the things that I always try to, to do with all the books. What is, uh, what is the, 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 the larger picture? What's the larger lesson in these crimes, other than don't don't commit murder, of course? But you know that's the biggie: don't commit murder.
3: Yeah. <laughs> when you're at it, when you're at a cocktail party and they're talking about blood and guts, then yeah, don't hang out.
0: But it, uh, the, the bigger picture, of course, is it always goes to you know whether it's a sense of community or a life goes on or um, doing the right thing or overcoming obstacles in your life to, to solve something or to deal with uh, the grief or to deal with uh, the trauma. Looking at what is the major themes, life themes that all of us can relate to. We can all relate to loss, hopefully not uh, involving murder, but we've all suffered some type of a loss in our lives. So people can relate to how families feel, I want people to take out some of the other other themes that you don't give up or you keep, you keep on uh, moving forward, even in the, the face of, uh, of the worst type of, of tragedy that a family could suffer, life goes on and how it goes on. And in, in this case, it is, it is some of the universal themes, of course, is um, doing the right thing, even if it is difficult, even if it is at... What, some would consider personal risk, possible personal risk, uh, criticism. That, that's one of the themes in Child Last Seen. Um, and just as in uh, The Ghost, uh, the, one of the major themes is the determination uh, to seek see justice and the closeness of the community and how uh, community makes a difference, uh, how small communities can wrap themselves around uh, families to help
3: soothe uh, the pain. How do you write the actual crime or crime scene when it's involving children and stuff? I don't, you know, in, in true crime, you kind of have to tell people what happened when, you're, when you know the answers. But how is it, you, how is it that you write the, uh, the violence, let's say, on the page?
0: With sensitivity and great difficulty. I am not a writer who writes gore. I keep in mind that family members will be reading this, so I stay away from a lot of the gory details. You know, there's. I'll take a scientific approach to the, the crime scenes, but I don't use include gore just for the sake of gore. So I'm I'm very very careful uh, with that because. Otherwise, that is a turn off to readers, and I think it slows down the story. You can write and say things in a way that the reader gets it, but you don't have to uh, rub their face in it, so to speak. And when it comes to children, I, that's always always difficult. Yeah, as I said, I I am not a big fan of uh, of gore in these types of stories. Uh, you can allude to it. You can. Quote the different um, court paperwork, but you don't need to go over the top, so to speak. At least I try. That, that, that's how I do it. People do things differently.
3: Do you ever get surprised after all these years, still learning um, new things and new ways? People have murdered or or committed crimes and stuff. Is there ever? Did you, have you seen it all, or is it just keep on? <laughs> just keep on finding out new stuff.
0: Oh, I you know I I am always surprised with. Everything every single story I've ever written, there's always an element of surprise. Um, there's always a little twist to everything, you know, Like there was one case a number of years ago where a guy killed his mother and kept her in her bedroom uh, until his brother came over, wondering where Ma was um, and why she didn't come over for Christmas. and you was know, in the New year's I believe it was January 2nd. Came over and discovered, came over with the police. I I believe it was the police found found her dead in the room and the windows were open and he had the air, I think he had the air conditioner on to, so that the body wouldn't smell. And he told his brother, I just wanted to spend one more holiday with mom.
3: Norman Bates, (laughs) you know, she's in a (laughs) recliner.
0: Exactly. So that's exactly what I was thinking. And, you know, we all have seen Psycho, or most of us have. And you think, oh, that would never happen. And here it is. I'm <laughs> thinking, that was my first thought. I, I've stepped into psycho in this courtroom. So, so I am always surprised with um, all of the cases. There is no run-of-the-mill case because if you del- delve deep enough, there's always a little bit of a twist. It's, it's one of those things you have to look for. Um, and you have to keep asking questions. You have to go beyond the surface. And that's where that's where you find the real story.
3: But after after each one of these cases, not quite often, we talk to fiction writers too, and I always ask them a question about the what each book does for them or how it changes them, you know, in their life and stuff. So when you're writing true stories, and it's more more personalized because you meet people and stuff, and you're more involved. How, how does each case and each book that you write about change you? Like at the end of it, when so when you finish Child Last Scene, completed it into the publisher, it's all, all the edits done. When you sit down, how do you think you're different from before you started it?
0: Um, I think I'm sm- smarter. Uh, I have learned something, whether it's in with Child Last Scene, I've learned some new things about Pittsburgh, about. Other parts of Western Pennsylvania. I've learned things about town, uh, small town life, how religion plays a major role in people's lives, how good people can be. That's the other thing that came out of a child Last scene. Very often you can you get jaded. You know, all people are in it for themselves. You know, people are scum. People are not nice. And then you peer into a different world that is not in your immediate circle and discover how good people can be. And uh, you discover a, a, different, a different part of the country that is fairly close by, um, different ways of viewing things, and how people, people, how people are good. I think that is the one thing about Child Last Seen that I came away with, even though it's a horrible story, very sad and tragic story, um, but it is also a story of people doing good, and that's what I came out with. And also, there's a lot of gray area, too. Nothing is all good. Nothing is all bad. There is in life, as, as you know, a very ever-widening gray area in everything. And I hope to also show the, that gray area of stories that people know. You know, you're rooting for this person, and you really hate that person. Um, but there is a middle part of a story that you need to fill in so that you understand both sides. So each, each book, each book does change it. It was each, each of my books has changed me in terms of how I view things.
3: Well, hopefully on a, on a positive note, um, what, what happened to uh, Patty siblings? Were, were any of them able to see Conrad face justice?
0: Yes. Yes, they did. Um, one of her older sisters had died in the meantime, but her mother saw. I was able to see uh, quote unquote closure in the case, uh, and all of her other siblings were able to see justice found for her. Yeah, that that I think is really important that they were able to to know where she was uh, and could put her to rest. You know, they'll never put the case behind them because you can't. But they um, but they were able to know the ending, which is which is what is. Uh, well, important. As horrific as it was, um, at least they knew the ending. And a lot of families never know what the ending is. You know, there's so many families out there whose sons and daughters or mothers and fathers have gone missing, and they have no idea where they are. They're presumed dead, but there's always in the back of their mind, well, maybe they're not, you know. Every so often those cases pop up where someone went missing, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and they show up someplace you know, elsewhere in the country, and they always well, maybe, maybe that's what this case is, even though they know it's not.
3: So, um, at the, at this point now, um, w- what happens? Do you do you take a break from this sort of a case and and all that before you jump into another one, or are you just are you working on something new already?
0: Once I had this done, uh, well, and I was already doing research on two other books. So I, I'm giving myself a little bit of a break, maybe a couple of weeks, and then start doing more research on the two other projects that I'm working on. And then I'll see which one of the two is far enough along that I can really focus on that. What I'll often do with each of the uh, the books, once they're done, I pack them all up in, in plastic bins, all of the uh, my notes and... Files and everything else associated with the case, put them in a plastic bin, seal it up, and put them to one side, and then start fresh with another plastic bin that I can put new, more files in. So I've got a number of bins already in my office, uh, some in the attic, and uh,
3: with with the bodies.
0: Yes, yes, with the bodies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the uh, you know the the number of boxes that I have for uh, that went with my first book, uh, Shallow Graves, A Hunt for the New Bedford Highway so Serial Killer, which is a, a case that's very near and dear to my heart that involves serial serial killer who preyed on uh, women in the greater New Bedford, Massachusetts area in 1988. That's still unsolved, and two of the victims are still missing. Uh, I have this umpteen number of uh, boxes uh, with material in it. I hope to I hope that case eventually is solved, so I can haul those boxes out and write a write a sequel with the, with the answer in that case.
3: Well, it'd be nice if it happened. Don't hold your breath. I'm not very positive of persons. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah but 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 you never know you never know it, after I wrote the, that book, uh, the number of people who came forward. You know, saying you know, it's dropping names of who the killer was or who they thought the killer was. You know, and not not a single one came up with the same name. There's at least a dozen or two dozen names that you know. Oh, it's this person, and you know, you should look at this person. You should look at that person. And I always thought this person was was kind of odd. And you know, it it all points to a lot of the frustration that investigators had with that serial killing case where there was wasn't that there was no suspects, there were too many suspects, which in itself is is frightening when you step back and think about it.
3: So let's see. Now, um, how do people find Maureen? Are you on social media? Do you have a website? Do you have uh, bars you hang out in? Where do, where do people <laughs> find Maureen?
0: <people>? Yes. <laughs> yes, on Twitter it's uh, Maureen E. Boyle 1. Let me make sure I got it right. Um uh, <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, when, when you have the app, uh, you never look at what your, uh, your handle is. Everyone else needs to know that, but you don't. Yeah, it's Maureen E. as in Elizabeth Boyle, number one, that I'm on Twitter for Instagram. Maureen E. Boyle, no numbers on it, which is good. And I have an author's page. Uh, I, I kind of lucked out on that with, uh, with Instagram. Um, and uh, on Facebook, I have an author's page, which is my name. There's also a, a Facebook page for Shallow Graves, uh, uh, the hunt for the New Bedford Highway Serial Killer. So people can, can reach me and message me through uh, any of those platforms.
3: Are you running a website?
0: Yes. Uh, we've got two websites. One is Maureen Boyle, Maureen Boyle Writer, and the other one is shallowgravesthebook.com. com.
3: great. We'll have that up on the website and people can find you. They don't have to search you know they can just find it and stuff make it easy and uh anyway uh, and w- which bars are you hanging out in <laughs> uh, these,
0: these days uh, the bars are on our back deck uh with because we can get uh better wines <laughs> and the company sometimes is better also it's, it's a bit quieter no body parts, yes. We can, I can hide. We, yeah. can hide. <laughs> we know the ground. <laughs>
3: well, now the book we're talking about is *Trial Last Seen. It's the search for Hattie Desmond. And the writer's been our guest, Maureen Boyle. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always fun talking to both of you guys.
3: Thanks, Maureen.
1: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests,